on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel the first. Mm. And we are delighted to be joined by Saeed Jones this week. Hello. Hello, my queens. Hi. Yes. I feel like this is a long time coming. How is this your first time here? How strange. You know, it's... You know, I it both felt inevitable, and when that's the case, I tend not to rush. But I'm here. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, the opposite of Paul. Let the Abdul. moment arrive. Okay, like, you no know, rush. We'll get around to it. <laughs> they know where to find me. God, I love Rush. Rush. Paula Abdul's ballad career underrated, guys. Uh, Stop wait, it. What's the other? <laughs> Blowing kisses in the wind. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she is singing off key on the record. On the but... record. Yeah. <laughs> I I think about that Whitney Houston moment once a day. Louis, <laughs> <laughs> you will know. Someone reminded me too the other day that it was um. What did Madonna say about her famously? There was a Madonna about drag Paula too. Abdul? Yes. It was like Madonna oh, and well, Whitney like seem to both just like hate damn. this woman. Well, what I actually remember vividly is Madonna dragging, of all people, Mariah Carey in the mid-90s in a long yes. interview uh-huh. uh, talking about like, well, she's putting this out and I'm putting all this other stuff out. It was unusually pressed uh, given that they mm-hmm. aren't like a Venn diagram overlap in many ways. But, mm-hmm. um, but of course, Paula Abdul was so everywhere i mean just a phenomenon that i i can hardly imagine madonna not commenting on her so i'm sure it was i mean the woman is nasty i'm sure she said something nasty. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it's, I, I know y'all were just talking about parasocial relationships and everything you know just last week but i was mm-hmm. like yeah girl like watching whitney and sissy houston like talk about janet jackson i was like you know there used to be like a extra social like these girls used to just fully go after one another like mm-hmm. it's crazy yeah. I also wonder what song Whitney was specifically talking about with Paul Abdul. It must be like a Rush Rush or something, something involving actual singing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or probably even just straight up. Oh, yeah. She's like, she's like, why do I keep hearing this song everywhere? <laughs> I mean, God, even those... just the, the cadence, like Whitney just like, Mom, she was singing off key on the record. Like, it was just brutal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, Saeed, I have not seen you in ages since you Girl. also departed New York City. Tell us about tell us about living in Ohio. Oh, honey, it's been a pandemic and at least a few media mergers, a couple of Aussies, <laughs> a couple of Quibbies since you and I have last seen each other. No, I mean, I, so I moved, uh, I left New York after about a decade um, of living in New York City. I moved to Columbus, Ohio in September of 2019 
which, you know, the pandemic has messed me up. To me, that feels like a year ago. It feels like I've only been here for a year, but of course it's been super not just a year. Um, <laughs> but no, it's great. I don't know. I Almost as soon as I moved here, just because it's like, the pace is a little bit more calibrated to what I need. It's it's actually very chaotic. The gays run this city, so it's it is not like I think people think I live in Indiana, and I'm like, no, Columbus is pretty pretty mm-hmm. wild. Um, but it's easier to live here. It's more affordable, mm-hmm. um, and so I just it's easier for me to create work. You know, I, I can afford to just like be in my home doing what I want to do, and then also saying no a lot. Like I realized. When you live in a place like New York or L.A. where it's just really expensive and and very competitive, uh, you say yes to almost everything. Like I realized like there was like kind of like almost like a a fear based calculus that was like kind of running in my brain where you're like Mm -hmm. either you need the money or, you know, there is another queen who will step into that opportunity the moment. You you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. you're just like, yes, you know, Um, and here I'm just like, it's fine. Yeah. It's I can pay my bills, yeah. I can afford my rent. Um, so yeah, I'm just happy, and right now I'm finishing up edits on my next book. We love Columbus that. is one of the few like super gay cities I have not been to, and mm-hmm. I, whenever I hear about it, it, it feels like I'm missing out. Like a, a mm-hmm. lot is going on there. What is it like there in Columbus? Um, so I mean, a, a statistic that I first saw that like kind of shook me was that there are apparently more gay people. I don't know how we're defining gay people. I don't know if that's like the full mm-hmm. LGBTQIA or just the men's, um, mm-hmm. but per capita in Columbus than in New York, San Francisco, or LA. Like, and it's true. I mean, I just, I mean, grinder. It's like you know, it's like going to the North Pole with a compass. You just, it's just a lot going <laughs> on. <laughs> um, and you know, I was trying. You know, again, the pandemic has kind of shaken up my opportunity to you know see a lot of normal things. But um, apparently, before the pandemic. Boys Town Pride in Chicago and then Pride here in Columbus would kind of rival one another. So mm-hmm. just to kind of mm-hmm. if, if you've been there and we know those girls are crazy on a whole other level, mm-hmm. it's kind of like that, too. Yeah. Okay. It's, Gangs it's of the really Midwest. Fun. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Columbus versus Boys Town. Um, I, it's, it's, it's also it's exciting seeing, you know, like this. I feel like so many um authors i know now um mm-hmm. are like i'm gonna live in a nice little city that's not the major city where mm-hmm. it used to be you know um the the authors you know that we um read in school or revere our favorites you know like right. their stories were you know they're like living broke in new york you know mm-hmm. struggling to get by mm-hmm. or um living in europe somewhere or why right. was i actually talking to jeremy o'harris the other day about um this woman named miss ann who was like the white woman who paid for all yes. of like so uh-huh. many like black uh-huh. authors in the harlem renaissance's yep. um work mm-hmm. uh he was talking about it because someone was like we would love to make this story and he was like i mm-hmm. don't think um we need a story about the white woman who um funded <laughs> the Harlem Renaissance. emma stone and tate taylor stuck right up yeah. <laughs> also the tea on, and the tea on miss ann there's a whole because yeah there was like a specific philanthropist mm-hmm. who was like the benefactor but also it goes back to like antebellum so miss ann was actually the original karen so like you can go back and it's like they would just be like oh miss ann paying attention to our business like mm. 
mm-hmm. a whole thing. But no, no, you're right. I mean, here in Columbus, I mean, we've got Hanifa Durkeev, you know, yes. who just like won the MacArthur Genius Grant. He literally just lives, he's born and raised here. Maggie mm-hmm. Smith um, lives here as well. I don't know. I think of a lot of like Mississippi artists who are like really proud, you know, Casey Lehman, mm-hmm. uh, Jasmine Ward, you know, they've been holding mm-hmm. it down for some time. So, okay, yeah. so Columbus is popping. Oh, girl, we're living. You know, we're, we're, we're thriving. We're thriving. And something I learned, too, is like I moved here and I, of course, I know writers, but it, Columbus is also like a, has a pretty rich, like, um, illustration, visual art community and it's a big comic book uh, community here, too. So there's just been a lot. I mean, in, in a way... I don't know. It's been, I, I've enjoyed getting to know people, even in amidst the pandemic, doing cool shit just in all kinds of media, you know, and maybe because it's like we're not so busy, like running around fighting for our lives <laughs> in Brooklyn. People have time, I think, maybe to to vibe a little bit more. And I, I miss that. Um, I miss that from like earlier in my career. Yes, that's famously what your book, How We Fight for Our Lives, was about. You know, it was about running around Brooklyn. The desire to vibe. <laughs> oh my God, the desire to vibe by Rupi Kaur. Please tell us that's the name of the third book. <laughs> the desire to vibe. <laughs> I was telling someone the other because they're always like, "Would you write another another memoir?" I'm like, "I hope I have nothing that would require another memoir like in my life." Um, but I'm like, you know, how we fight for our lives too, bitch. Would you believe I'm still fighting? You know, <laughs> how will we stop here. fighting too? Yeah. <laughs> That's the color purple too. All my life I'm still having the fight. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, we have got a fun episode this week. We are going to talk about Dune, you know, and yes. maybe the state of sci-fi films and big blockbusters because i have a lot of thoughts after seeing it uh we are also going to talk about biopics um our favorites our least favorites and um (laughs) how to make a good biopic i think we will figure that out on the podcast today probably um that's my (laughs) and we also get into this topic a little bit with our guest today who is I mean, I wrote, what is wrong with us that we attracted? How did we get Claire Foy? <laughs> it's fucking weird. <laughs> it's so bizarre. All right. I mean, we're going interview to interview you, Claire Foy. But, uh, I mean, you're up there and we're down here. So, anyway. <laughs> the queen. Lewis is like, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> I'll allow it. Uh, I always thought that like someone like Claire Foy would have to just like go to London and just bombard her while she's drinking tea at Fortnum and Mason. No. Just right. Claire on Claire. my moped driving by her. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, we will be right back with much more Keep It. This weekend, Denis Villeneuve Dune rode a sandworms wave all the way to a $40 million box office hall. But wherever you watched it, the movie theater, the home theater, on your phone, I personally saw it in IMAX. You're still waiting on a conclusion um, because the movie is only half of the first book. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, Zendaya is in 10 minutes of the film. But I loved it, personally. 
What did you two think? I absolutely loved it. I saw it three times, and I'm going to see oh, it again. Oh, get the fuck weekend. out! I oh my god, it. I want to see it I again too. I was enraptured. <laughs> I there yeah. hadn't been since. Like maybe when I was a kid or seeing like my first like, you know, like superhero movie or something, I like mm-hmm. sci- big expansive sci-fi film. I'm just sitting there in IMAX at Grauman's Chinese, you know, um, after I put my hands in little Marilyn Monroe uh, and then went into the theater. I'm sitting there next to my friend and I'm just like the entire time I'm like and he's read the book. I haven't read the book mm-hmm. uh, and he's seen the other version as well. And I'm just leaning over to him it, periodically during this film going, this is amazing. This mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm having so much fun. Well, yeah. Okay. Get this. I think I will have that experience. I made the mistake of thinking, Oh, I'll just watch it at home. No Lewis, because part of it is just like arrival or even a movie. I don't really love uh, blade runner 2049, which are obviously, Denis Villeneuve movies. Mm-hmm. You need to be wrapped up in it. It needs to. You need mm-hmm. to be in the gray nimbus cloud of the movie. You need to mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. feel like you're on the on this crazy planet and stuff. It needs to not be me flipping between Wheel of Fortune and Dune. It can't be that. Sorry. <laughs> no, you so can't I'm, do I'm that. here as a cautionary tale. Like I, I've ruined it a little bit for myself for even thinking that was possible to watch at home. You absolutely should not watch it at home. No. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so for me, I, I watch it at home. I have a, a pretty. Pretty big TV screen. I, so I was stoned the first time I watched it. Mm. And and like you were saying, Ira, the reason I enjoyed watching it home the first time is because I went in, I don't know a lot about Dune. I think I'd watched a couple of explanatory TikToks. That was about all I had. <laughs> I think I barely knew who was in it, you know? Mm. Um, and and then I was watching it and I kept having, like you were saying, awe. I was like, whoa, wait a And so I, because I was home, I was able to keep rewinding it. So mm. the first time I watched it, that might have counted for three viewings on its own because I kept, I was just it, it was just like wait I can't go back and look at her dress or what the hell is in this box you know there were just like so many visual details obviously I'm a poet but I was just like this feels it was both epic and lyric you know the quiet moments where it's as vocative as like spaceships that were like the size of planets spaceships were coming out of water I, there was just so much that I actually I definitely look forward to seeing it in a theater and just like losing myself in Hans Zimmer insane score but I actually enjoyed that the first time I watched it I kept being able to go back and kind of focus on the little details because that's mm. what was making I was like wig another wig another wig <laughs> like it was just it was crazy <laughs> one thing that did entrance me though is that um, some it's right near the beginning that mm-hmm. scene with charlotte rampling like h- holding uh uh timmy in in, a, in this like i'll call it a stranglehold it's mm-hmm. not a stranglehold but my god i don't know when i don't know who decided a couple years ago that charlotte rampling was terrifying but my god they were absolutely correct in this scared she was in that totally bad jennifer lawrence movie uh red sparrow where she plays like uh something similar and uh, she had a she had her renaissance a few years ago in a movie called 45 years where she just plays a woman whose like marriage is falling apart after mm. uh, 40 years it is a fabulous movie i know i bring it up all the time in the podcast but my god uh mm-hmm. she is exactly right for this part and timmy with his you know he's still got that like black uh Mark Twain Mozart wig going on that we love for him. <laughs> I don't know if that was ori- in the original plan for this movie, but he just is like everything he does feels so exactly right. It, it's it's so weird to see a young actor mm-hmm. so get it right it, it, from moment to moment mm-hmm. all the time. I felt that way in Little yeah. Women though too. So 
Mm-hmm. You know, Charlotte Rampling learned how to be terrifying on the set of Stardust Memories, I'm sure. Oh God! Excuse me when you when you watch when you watch her make out with Woody Allen, you know something is fucking wrong, and people should have fucking said something at the time. I don't think you needed the uh, you didn't need like Ronan Farrow twenty seventeen to figure this out. You did not need that. Oh, no. uh, oh, my also, God. my first Charlotte Rampling film was Swimming Pool. Oh, there you go. I think that was my I think that was my first film of hers too. And then I'm still recovering from the trauma of London Spy. I was thinking about this last night. Mm. Just, oh right. Yes. Yes. With, I'll uh, never be adorable okay. Ben. Mm-hmm. I'll never be okay. But no, it's interesting. I was watching an interview that the director did with uh Vanity Fair. Because listen, I'm so into it now. I'm looking up shit on YouTube. Like explain this, explain the box. Mm. Um and he said that that scene with Charlotte Rampling was the first one of the first scenes they filmed. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, because I was like, that was the scene where I was like, my posture changed. You know, I mean, him uh, Tim is most interesting. Timothy Chardonnay <laughs> has ever been to me. <laughs> um, and then Char- and I didn't even realize it was Charlotte Rampling the first couple of times I watched it. You oh, know, totally. You that, can't, barely can tell. Mm-hmm. But you feel her gravity. And then Rebecca Ferguson, who I love. I feel like she brings it to you every ball. She tore this movie like, up. And it's so Ooh. great seeing her not just have to be opposite Tom Cruise. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> she deserves better she deserves better no yeah and she's always and I think because every character I mean she's obviously like you know she can play the femme fatale she's she's the complicated kind of gray lady you know there's always secrets her being cast as the mother you're just kind of like oh well this is how is she what is she gonna I mean because she let her son could have died <laughs> you know so I don't know I just I love that scene and this kind of gets to what you were saying with um, our girl Z the movie really belongs to Rebecca Ferguson and mm-hmm. Timothy Chardonnay, Timothy Rose, <laughs> Timothy Malbach, um, <laughs> Timothy Chablis, yes, <laughs> Timothy Moscato, <laughs> <laughs> Timothy Orange Wine, natural, you know, it's, it's the way. Aperol Spritz Chalamet. Uh, <laughs> now, listen, I when I first saw this film, I was like. Denis put his whole foot into this movie, okay? But then I'm like, mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer put his whole foot in this movie. Rebecca yes. put everything mm-hmm. in this film. It it just felt like a blockbuster. It felt like mm-hmm. cinema. Um, and yes. I need I need cinema again. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I did see Eternals last night and they did not bring it to you at the ball. Oh, oh my really? god. I haven't no. seen that yet. Oh. Excuse me. No, you remember No Nomadland? Yeah. This is so bad. Okay. All right. Eternals Ooh. Eternals jumped on the track. Um born as hell. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Listen, go back. Go back from whence you came, aliens. Uh, oh, no. And I this this brings up a whole thing about like the state of sci-fi for me. It's just the movie mm-hmm. looked expensive. It looked expansive. Like there's a shot mm-hmm. where there's a ship um just like in the sand in Dune, and it mm-hmm. it looks so gorgeous. On the flip mm-hmm. side. As much as I'm a Marvel stan, these movies look cheap in comparison. And I know Disney got all the damn money. The Star Wars movies are looking cheap, too. It's just all this CGI. And it's, Mm -hmm. Chloe Zhao, um, 
you know, has said that, you know, like um, they used um, real locations for um, the outside, you know, because like that's that's her gig. That's her judge. Um, mm-hmm. But you couldn't really tell like you're seeing a beach and a forest and, um, you know, like the it is not giving expansive. You know, and I, think- I was going to say what you're describing is the difference between spectacle and grandeur. Mm-hmm. And Oof. Denis Villeneuve is the king of grandeur. Yes. Because when you're watching Arrival, that's a movie that feels as big as a universe. And mm-hmm. the feelings therein are like shocking and occasionally alienating. There's a, there's a mm-hmm. Kafka-esque quality to that movie. And he fills the expansiveness of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, is that's yeah. the question when you have a movie of this size. It's like, is there a reason this movie is this big? Yeah. You know, right. do the feelings match? the size of the film. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Blade Runner 2049, which was the first movie I I saw of his, um, you know, it's, I mean, it has epic scale, but, you know, it's more urban. But even just the way he's able to make the insides of, you know, office buildings and homes, I mean, he just, he really brings like an elevated, um, you know, level of art to, to something we take for granted. The other thing that I think now about Dune that's really interesting is that Dune is like this weird thing. It's actually a very simple story in terms of, you know, it's archetypal, right? It's a messiah story. We know that like the back of our hands. And also it has the misfortune of inspiring a bunch of science fiction that has come to mass mainstream media since then. Mm. So it's this kind of weird thing. I feel like to be accurate to the source material, you're almost like, how do I do this where people don't go, wait, this is just Star Wars. You know, the way he was able to take a story, we all kind of know like the back of our hand. And then I think it was via the scale. It was via the visual poetry. I mean, the clothes mm-hmm. alone, you know, just made, you're right. I was like, damn, everything else looks cheap. I didn't, it was just like, when you've been shopping at H&M and Zara, like, cause you're, you know, young and in your twenties and the first time you're able to afford like a well-made black sweater, you know what I mean? And you're like, Oh, I thought all the black sweaters were the same. And you're like, no, indeed, bitch. They are not. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is giving cashmere. Okay. Hello. Yes. Uh, you did not have to tussle with the sales girl uh, to get it either. It is just, it is beautifully wrapped. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. That is what dude is, and I just, I don't know. It's it's uh, we've had this debate before, and I mean, not to be Marty Scorsese, but you know, mm-hmm. I need the cinema, okay? I need cinema, and I'm just feeling like, dear, I like there's people who've turned it out. You know, Ryan Coogler turned it out with Black Panther. I think Taika Waititi has mm-hmm. turned it out with Ragnarok, but like. Chloe got Chloe disappeared in this film and it didn't feel anything like no man land mm. anything um like um the writer the writer uh yes um bunny the writer uh, which I don't even love. <laughs> I don't even love the writer, to be honest. That's so weird um, that you don't love the writer. I thought that movie slayed. Uh, you, you know what I need in a film Lewis? I need actors. Okay. <laughs> but you like Nomadland, yeah, which is full of non actors. Well, yeah. That at least has Francis McDormand to like hold the center. Right. The center does That's hold. That's true. In the writer, the center does not hold. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. okay? I'm just like, great. I would love to have a drink with y'all at the local bar, but I, uh, I, I like actors. I very rarely watch films with people yeah. who cannot act. 
All right. Okay. okay. <laughs> was that another Whitney poll? Like, Just Whitney quote. Yeah, that was Whitney quote. Yeah. I like singers. I very rarely <laughs> listen to people who cannot sing. <laughs> Slouching towards callbacks. I love it. Uh, I love it. That's no, us. It was so good. Yeah. Also, also, I want to say, Rebecca Ferguson running up those sand dunes mm-hmm. on its own was first of all she's wildly fat you know how hard it is to run on sand y'all yes. there's like two or three times where she run, and i was like bitch what are you on like i can't even run on the beach <laughs> it was so compelling <laughs> <laughs> yeah, catch me not at the sidewalk. santa monica pier yeah. <laughs> uh, it just begs the question like where does the blockbuster where do these sci-fi films go you know i mean dune I mean, they could have continued making money, you know? Maybe Eternals will probably make Boku the money. It is Marvel. They have a chokehold mm-hmm. on the industry. But, damn, I just I miss spectacle. And I remember yeah. when we were first getting superhero films, you know, as a Stan who grew up with them, who has my Batman and the Spider-Man tattoos, who used to go to the fucking comic book store every week. I would walk that two miles down Burleigh in Milwaukee to go to Collector's Edge Comics, peruse the back issues. Like, the reason I know so many of these random characters who pop up in Marvel movies is because, like, I would get, like, back issues from like the 60s, 70s, 80s, just right. whatever like like the cover for, and then just buy it and read it because they were like 50 cents or a dollar, you know? And um, that mm-hmm. spectacle for reading a comic as a kid and then the, to see it on the big screen, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just slowly dissipating. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, the pandemic, the pandemic has just like messed us all up. I mean, one, I have found myself over the last what, two years, wanting to watch television shows more than feature films anyway, Mm -hmm. because I want it, like, life is so hard. I'm like, no, no, baby, I need you to give me 10 hours of an alternate reality. You know what I mean? Like, a a movie, it's just too short-lived. But I've got to say, watching you... Uh, it's lush. TV's got TV shows that seem like Mm -hmm. they have more budget than these blockbusters. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. And also, but no, I would say watching Dune and then rewatching it, it's the, I don't think it's just the pandemic, frankly. Um, But it was the first time in a while I have a vivid memory of being like, oh, this is the difference between a television show and a movie. This is what the distinction is supposed to be. Not that I think TV is like inherently cheap or that it, that high art isn't possible there. But when I was watching Dune, I, it felt like when I saw Blade Runner 2049, where I was like, literally every image is a work of art. You could blow it up and put it in a frame and put it in a mute, put it in the Louvre, put it in the Louvre and Maybe not the back. Denise ate up Zicario, okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sicario, which took me for the He's longest damn. to think to figure out whether or not it was um, Narcos. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, same. I, I, okay. I, every time someone talk about Sicario, I'm like, is is that the Netflix show? Um, but once I finally saw yeah. it, my girl Emily Blunt ate it up. You know, I'm Blunt supremacy, sure Lewis. Oh yeah. Well, Edge, Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, it's still it's, arguably it, her best work. Truly, yeah. I mean, I. Sorry, Devil Wears Prada gays, but Edge of Tomorrow is right. Emily Blunt's best work, and I don't think many of them have seen it. People need more people need to see that in film. She I don't has, know if I've seen it all the way through. I feel like I've just seen the end for some reason. She's in a bunch of movies that are like popular, but like just off the beaten path. Like the average movie in her filmography is Looper. 
You know, like it's like right. I did see that, but mm-hmm. there's like no cultural discussion about that movie. Looper yeah. also the interchangeable? a fucking oh. classic. Maybe Ryan Johnson's second best film after I love right. actually it's best yeah. his best who, film. Wait, it's I was saying you asked who the star of it is. Yeah, the star of Joseph Gordon Levitt and Bruce Willis. No, that's Looper though. That's Looper. Yeah, oh, that's tomorrow? what I thought you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, Edge of oh, Tomorrow's Tom Cruise. Yeah. yeah. That's that's why I only saw the end. Okay. Yes. Um it's it's fine. I'm I'm the last living Tom Cruise stamp. Besides the rest of the world, yeah. <laughs> if it's not the Scientology, it's the teeth thing. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no going back. Well, you know, now that there's he's no in back. his aging era, as we've seen in those photographs, <laughs> um, you know, maybe he's coming for that Oscar again, gaining some weight. Oh no! Gonna go, g- give us give us acting, okay? Born on the fifth of July. <laughs> Oh, stop <laughs> it. <laughs> Get out. Man, I will say, though, I, when I think of him in Magnolia, I mean, that would have been a good Oscar win, I have to say. Just We've, definitively. Yes. Like a bone chilling, like toxic masculinity persona. That's one of my like favorite years. A, That's one of my favorite years. Mm-hmm. Who was he up against again? He uh, That would have been uh, Michael Clark Duncan. He lost uh, Haley Joel Osment. That's, uh, but Michael Michael Caine won for this uh, Cider House Rules. Yes. Who? Jude Law and, the, and the talented Mr. Ripley. Okay, yes. So that Oof. one is one of my okay. favorite years because that is one where I'm like, I could have given it to any of those girls except... Yeah. Michael Caine and that boring ass movie, but I'm like, but for me, I'm like Jude Law and the talented Mr. Ripley and Tom Cruise and Magnolia are two of my favorite male performances ever put on screen. So mm-hmm. definitely, yeah. uh, I do want to give a shout out to Michael Caine, who just officially retired recently. And I thought, well, why would he retire? He's still doing such great work. Then I realized, oh, he's a trillion. This man is like 88 old years old. Oh. Well, you know, when you're rich enough and white enough, it just starts to blur. I'm like, uh, 88, 98. He's, he's one of those people that was also kind of never young. Even in like Alfie, he was like a man of some experience. So it's like, I didn't expect him to actually age, you know. Okay, fair. fair I enough. mean, 88, I guess. You know, I was about to say Holland Taylor's still doing it, but she's only 78. I know, right. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, okay, B- Betty White, is Betty White retired? I think probably technically she hasn't been in anything in a while and she turns a hundred soon. Yeah. So she, she, she's just trying to make it, make it to that century. I think just chilling. <laughs> I hope she's living a lush life. Um, but I didn't you know, know she is. I didn't know Michael Caine officially retired. Um, oof, you know, I guess tenants a way to go out. on that note uh, (laughs) when we're back (laughs) Claire Foy will join Lewis and I um, and I I promise not to use my British accent um, so she won't turn (laughs) off her camera Um, but there will be more keep it uh, with us and Saeed coming right up Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? 
<laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is an Emmy Award-winning actress who has starred in films like Unsane and First Man. On television, she starred in the classic miniseries such as Little Dorrit and played not one, but two British queens on The Crown and Wolf Hall. Today, she's here to talk about her new film, The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne. Please welcome Claire Foy. Hello. Hello. Uh, We are thrilled to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm shocked that I'm frankly, I'm shocked that you would be on a podcast. You're so astronomically uh, talented and important, et cetera. I I hope you don't feel degraded by being here. I love (laughs) to be a podcast. This is it for me. From now on, I'm only going to do podcasts. That's it. Okay. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. You know, it's much less stress than, you know, doing a late night talk show. So it is. But there is the potential that something could slip out because I'm so relaxed and in my living room that, you know, I'm vulnerable, basically. (laughs) But also, Big British, you have the best talk shows. I mean, I think that Graham Norton is maybe better than oh, most of the talk shows that we have here in the he's U.S. He's a pro. Yeah, he's, he's, he does it very, very, very well. Is London press in general more fun than American press? Are you used to getting like cooler questions, more interesting opportunities to talk about what you're doing over there? On the whole, I'd say across the board, no. Um, no. <laughs> 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 no, not at all. I think that, you know... Um, I love being able to travel, basically, to do. I love coming to the States. And I love traveling anywhere to do any sort of press, which is not working, basically, in my... It is work, but it's not. It's basically a jolly where you go with all your friends and go to nice places. Um, so I'll put up with any sort of questions wherever I am, basically, if it means I can get on an airplane. <laughs> I'm not really bothered. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when you signed on to do um, 
this Lewis Wayne biopic, um, which, you know, you're opposite Benedict Cumberbatch um, again, because uh, you've worked yeah. with him before. Um, uh, were you familiar with Lewis Wayne's work, um, his, his drawings of eccentric cats? No, I think that I have, must have been, I think a lot of people must have been aware of him. I think it's one of those things that you, um, without knowing it, you must have seen it at some point in your mm. life because I think he was so successful and so prolific that I think that most people would have seen some of his work. So no, not at all. But that's what was weird about it. There was sort of a familiarity to it without knowing anything about him at all. Um, which is based that you know basically what's amazing about one being in a film, but also watching them is suddenly you real there's this whole person that you knew nothing about who had this sort of extraordinary, amazing life, and you get to watch it and be in it. It's great. Now, I in the broad strokes, this looks like oh, you know, familiar biopic of eccentric genius with a bit of a tremble about him, and uh, you know, will he make it out okay? He's so troubled by how you know brilliant he is, but there is like a strange set of quirks involved with this movie in particular what is your favorite sort of idiosyncrasy of this movie that sets it apart from you know other kind of oscar looking biopics yeah i mean i actually said to will the first the director will sharp um our first conversation was when i was in the uh, market hall of ikea um and i remember saying <laughs> to him i remember <laughs> saying to him i have no interest in being in a historical biopic which is just not what you want to hear when you're making a historical biography. <laughs> um, but I was I'm not, I'm not really, you know, I, people's lives are extraordinary. And I think there's so much value in so many different stories that can be told. But for me as an actor, it has to mean something. And, and, and I have to be doing something not different, but like stretching my capability or, or at least, you know, be doing something interesting in the medium of, filmmaking or tv or whatever it is i'm doing or theater um and as soon as i spoke to will i realized that after seeing flowers extraordinary kind of tv show that he did about um different mental disorders and things like that i i knew that he had a plan he had he had an eye for what he wanted to make and that was basically a film that reflected the art of this artist it was like that on set. It was such an imaginative set. There were days when you would turn up and the whole set would be basically alive. Like it would it would be some sort of crazy modernist um, blue set and you'd be in it or that just little touches. And I love that when you're making something and you can see that so much thought and care has gone into it about the smallest, minutest thing that only the actor would notice. It's just so thoughtful and kind to the performer that instead of looking down and opening a drawer and it's like, oh, there's the tag of the, you know, where they've borrowed the chest of drawers from, it's filled with imagination about that character and the, everything was, uh, you know, um, 3D and you could use it and everything like that. So I, I think Will just approaches things in a really interesting way. I think he's a really interesting filmmaker. I think he's like, I am so excited to see what he's going to do. Of course, um it, it's funny even hearing you say that you told Will, like, I don't want to do a biopic because you've famously done so many. Um, was it because you felt like you'd just been maybe burnt out on biopics, having done Wolf Hall and having done The Queen? And, you know, or was is there something specific that you think that you look for when you're like, I'm going to depict 
someone's life, particularly having depicted the lives of two um, very important historical British figures? Yeah, it's weird. I think I, um, I don't really see, weirdly, I don't really see The Crown as a biopic um, because it's not about mm -hmm. one person, really. Um, and it's such a dynasty and it's like um, such a huge story it's so historical it's not just about one person's life that that I didn't really see it like that and I neither first man actually um I think I just think you have to be ruthless with yourself about why you make a choice and what you're doing it for and there's all sorts of different reasons why and I, I was when when Benedict and Will approached me about this I was planning on doing a play and I'd just taken basically really from acting two years off I've been doing press and things like that but from acting it's been a quite a while that I hadn't worked and I wasn't at the point where I was like I want to make I want to be in something I want to deep dive and be method and you know basically torture myself for three months I'm not in I'm not I'm still not there yet um but also I want to make things that matter and I think that's the thing that Will really wanted to make something about this guy who you know, had been categorised and diagnosed and all sorts of things because of how his brain worked and written off and, and underestimated. And I, and, I, and that, something like that really, I really felt that that way, the way we wanted to do it really made me think, do you know what, there's a there's a place for this and it has, and his life has a, a meaning that needs to be communicated, which isn't just, you know, here's this person who lived and let's tell a blow, 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 historical account of, their life but I you know Will was never going to do that but that's my stuff not him I was projecting basically on him I fear he dealt with it very well can you talk about what goes into needing to take two years off of acting I mean like I, I think of it's such a uh, an occupation run uh assumably on like the actor's passion and then I guess after a while you must get so burnt out on it but what goes into realizing like I need to not do this for a little while gosh I mean exhaustion basically I think it's I've never been an actor who um worked and worked and worked like constantly back to back um I'd done it a couple of times and always basically to the detriment of my self it's not so much the work although if you are doing things that either are physically um difficult or emotionally traumatic every single day like that's not a great place to be in for a long period of time um but it's also it's just the hours it's the hours you're working 14 hours a day and um that's really tiring and the crew that I've, that's what I've never really been able to understand about crew is that they do that constantly they go from one job to the other to the other to the other to the other on that schedule and and it's really you know pretty um brutal especially if what basically ended up happening was I was shooting and doing press and traveling and which was so exciting and so wonderful to be at that point and and experience that but at the same time I just needed to put the brakes on and just go whoa 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 like just let's all calm down and um and I physically ruined basically just stuff like you know it's like when your body tells you you've got to, when you just start getting ill, continue. I just was ill all the time. And, um, you know, I was just, I physically was just completely battered basically. And I, and I needed to say, I need to stop. 
Just speaking a bit about how intense it can be doing a role, um, your role in Steven Soderbergh's Unsane, I have to think, would be one of the most grueling sort of um, experiences for you as an actor. I mean, just that film, um, what was it like, you know, shooting that one on an iPhone 7? Um, there have been 20 iPhones since then. Um, so it's, you know, sort of like a museum piece at this point. Um, but, you know, it's um, it's such an intense role and you go through so much. It's harrowing the watch. So I feel like it must have been harrowing to film. No, actually, that one was a dream. You know, mm. one, it was just so playful. Um, you know, Stephen did tell me that that film was never going to come out, basically. He said... This is never going to, I mean, I don't, this is, I don't even know what we're doing. We're basically making a student <laughs> film. Like everybody, it, like it was, it was like there were eight people in the crew. I did my own makeup. Like there was no, it felt very much like, do you want to just come and do this fun thing with me? And I was like, absolutely. And that's what I needed to do. I've been doing a TV show for like two and a half years. I just needed to do something that would be a breath of fresh air. And he just is a breath of fresh air. He's so great. Um, but yeah, and then then we had a. He came to London, and uh, he was like, "Should we meet up?" And he did this amazing thing where he gave me the clapperboard of the film. It was a tiny one because it was on an iPhone. Um, he was like, "Yeah, so the film's going to come out in cinemas, um, and we're going to do like a wide release of it." I was like, "Are you joking?" <laughs> he was like, "No, I think it's I think it's quite good." Um, so one, he lied, um, but two, he. Um, <laughs> He famously does very short days. He doesn't mess around. He's very much like, I've got mm. it. Are you happy with that? Have you got anything else to give? Are you, do you care? Let's go. Let's move on. Um, so it's very quick. You do a lot of material all the time. And it was just amazing that job to see someone who is so prolific and so, oh my God, he's a genius, be excited about making films and, and care. And um, and he was so like a, a kid with a new toy like he'd be like look how close I can get the camera to the wall and I don't even have to put a track down and he would like be in a wheelchair basically being wheeled by the grip with an iPhone in his hand like um it was like making a student film um and I just got to play I didn't take any of it not not seriously of course I took it seriously especially the fact that the, my character was put in a mental institution um like I took it very seriously but but I got to just just mess around and use the dialogue and just throw myself in and with no thinking about the fact that anyone would watch it basically but they did um mm -hmm. so so no actually so bizarrely that the rest is as good as a holiday like that for me was like a uh that was such a break from what i had been doing um and i was in new york and we were working like six hours a day and it was over 10 days. So no, that was not intense. It was just fun, like from beginning to end. It was so fun. <laughs> I assume filming something like that is different than, I guess, specifically The Crown, where the choreography of even where your hands are at every given moment must be dictated, I feel like, because it feels like everything, because the, the most minute detail is not just exquisite, but important to every shot so i'm wondering is that kind of thing way more difficult to film um i think it's more difficult in the sense that it's very you know it's, it was very dialogue heavy um yeah and you know there were like seven page scenes between just two people um and that is just a different um thing because 
you it's not so much that you are the acting is difficult but the amount of time it takes to shoot something like that you have to keep your brain in the game which is so difficult sometimes to explain because it's funny it's such a funny thing like it's such a easy job when you think about it like I know a lot of people don't want to do it but it's it's such an easy job in the sense that you turn up and you have a lovely time and people make you tea and blah 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 blah. but it's like that feeling like when you've been on a long drive and you're like what have I done I've basically been sat down for six hours how am I this exhausted (laughs) and it's because you can't relax you have to make yourself engage and you have to make it matter and you have to make it count and so that could be really exhausting and also I think just it is just tv is just a different beast in the sense that you know, it's just the hours, the relentlessness of the hours, six months of six months of those sort of hours. By the end, you could be being a fairy godmother and you would be like pulling your hair out going, oh my God, (laughs) I just need to be at home. Just please let me do anything different, anything, because it's just a lot. It's such a lot. It's such a lot. Those people Mm -hmm. who are constantly, constantly working at like seemingly never stopping, like Alice and Janney, how are you doing it? Is there a soul there still? I want to know, you know. Oh, there is. There has to be. Yeah. But surely she's not. I bet she has like a house in like, you know, Nantucket or something. Oh my God, can we just spend another half hour speculating on the life of Alice and Janney? Please. Oh, please, have it. (laughs) (laughs) I bet also, I bet she's kept costumes from her roles and there's a lot of sequins in there. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine like lots of sequined mm-hmm. capes and things. Um, and they're nothing she would have to return because she's so specifically tall too. Because you, she would just assume yeah. she could keep it. You know. Oh but. no! Exactly. Let's get let bring her up. Come on. Get her up here. <laughs> um, a, another question I I've always thought is you know like we were we're American. So like we were enraptured by the glamour and like a story that we don't know in the crowd. I have to imagine being British. Is there a general sense that it's like you are constantly seeing stories about the queen in um, Britain or like different plays, you know, with the same sort of historical characters? Like do you or other actors feel like maybe we'd like to represent some other people in British history? for once but does that ever happen yeah i mean there's lots i mean you know that we we're a very old country with a very sketchy past so (laughs) there's a lot of people (laughs) or stories that we could tell that maybe we don't um but there's a lot there's just so much there's just so much in our history which Mm -hmm. is wonderful so there's a lot you know there's a lot of historical drama but also um I don't think there really hasn't been. I think that Peter sort of has weirdly, and he says it himself, ended up specialising in this woman that he writes. He did um, uh, the audience, he did the queen, and then he did the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he himself is just like, how has this happened? How am I doing this? And I think that that was what we all, you know, me and Matt would endlessly have conversations just going, how are people going to care about these people? Like we've got an uphill battle here. And I don't know whether that is, I think it's easier, isn't it? To, it's the same with kind of the whole Trump era that was in the States. Like people I would talk to in the States, I would be absolutely fascinated by it. And and when I would talk to people, depending on which side they sat on, obviously, um, most people would be sort of traumatized and deeply concerned. And I mean, I was deeply concerned, but, but also in, there was a level of embarrassment and shame. And so I mm-hmm. think, 
it's easier to approach something from the outside. So I think the way that British people feel about the royal family is either you are for the Republic or you, you know, you, you have a position on the royal family basically in this country and either way we've grown up with it and they're there, you know, you drive around London and you see it on every single lamppost, the Royal emblem. And you see, um, uh, the, the presence of the monarchy is everywhere in the United Kingdom and basically how it functions and what it is. And so it's a day-to-day life thing. It's not so much that she is or the institution is, but it is, you know, we've had Kings and Queens since, the beginning of the this nation state like forever um so basically we're not that fussed is the answer mm-hmm. and also i think there's that sort of thing there is a thing of like how much more is there to know how much more is this to be mined and is interesting and i think what the crown did in those you know uh, the, the series the first two um series that i was in that i can speak about was was show you some human beings basically um and and put value in not categorizing people as privileged and therefore that they don't have a life and that you can't investigate that and be interested in that Mm -hmm. and um but yeah so i don't Mm -hmm. so i don't mean i can't really speak for the whole of the british public but i definitely approached Mm -hmm. it going uh come on come on what is there to know now that millennials are starting to take power i'm pretty sure every story will just be about diana (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i'm not sure there can be any more of this and i really like that's it yeah i don't know what angle there is left honestly uh, I, you, what you just said reminded me of there's a show here right now about the impeachment of bill clinton and i still remember when that was the story every day in the news and for that reason i still cannot watch the show like i'm just like i can't be brought back to 1998 when i heard about it every day you yeah know? because you feel like you know it also and you feel and i'm yeah. sure that that will be extraordinary and there'll be so much to be seen in it but i know what you mean that that's the thing is if it, you're overexposed to something that's like what you know it's like the question about pandemic you know about covid drama like i remember mm-hmm. talking to so many mm-hmm. people about no one's going to want to watch a drama about what we've just lived through because one we want to forget it yeah. <laughs> or we want to move on from it or you know i think it's like 10 years time probably we'll be able to properly do that no one wants to watch you know the armageddon of or contagion but about the pandemic <laughs> we're like no <laughs> we lived it that keep it away no shame to Diane Warren, the uh, who gave us wonderful soundtrack to Armageddon. So uh, shout out to oh. Diane Warren. <laughs> <laughs> Always shout out to Diane Warren on this podcast. Yeah, eleven time Oscar nominee. You are gonna get it. Go, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here, Claire. It's it's really been lovely. Thanks for having me. What a lovely thing to do with my afternoon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. And we are back. Um, with Saeed, you had one lingering thought about Dune. 
I did. It wore me out because uh, with uh, Blade Runner 2049, it was the same thing. Jackets, coats, outerwear, collars, and Dune. I was just like, I want, I've never desired anything Timothy Chalamet has worn or become. But bitch, the coats in this movie, everyone. When he I know. walked out. Uh, often this <sighs> I'm going to say often this movie reminded me of Project Runway's avant-garde challenges that they have. What comes out on the runway? Like somebody in like gray, like disheveled trash. Mm -hmm. And then Nina's Mm -hmm. like, I get it. That's the future. When he walked out (laughs) in that first coat, I leaned over to my friend and I said, I want it. I want the coat. I want the coat. I actually followed this Instagram account called Ready Timmy Wear. Um, that that um, <laughs> clocks everything that he wears and the prices mm-hmm. and where you can get a he wears a lot of Celine mm-hmm. he wears a lot of um, Stella McCartney right. uh, I have, I I have like. bought a few of the Gucci sneakers that he wears but you know a lot mm-hmm. of his shit is too expensive for my taste um, yeah but, well I just I feel like there are all these like collaborations and mm-hmm. stuff like that I'm like give me some give me some Dune X Balenciaga or something <laughs> like I, you know <laughs> I, I could guilt some white people into getting me one of those coats. Come on. Timothy Chalamet, what he does, I I, I mentioned this on Twitter recently, he doesn't wear clothes and it's not fashion, it's little outfits. Everything he wears is a little outfit. Yeah, he's a little outfit. You know. Like like when he ties his bow tie, it goes boink, you know. (laughs) Get out. Leave this zoo. (laughs) Touches his dimple, walks on out. Anyway, we just had a lovely chat with Claire Foy about her latest biopic, The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne, which got me thinking about biopics in general. Um, You know, we may have not been able to solve, you know, uh, cinema's science fiction blockbuster problem, but that's not stopping (laughs) us from tackling another genre of varying quality, the biopic. With at least seven major ones coming to screen over the next year, we have to ask, will any of them actually be good? And Mm -hmm. can we figure out the art of a good biopic? Because there are a lot of bad ones, baby. There are a lot of bad ones. I would say most are bad. Mm -hmm. Most are bad. And in fact, I would argue that like people want to talk about superhero movies or sci-fi or franchises being like the problem with Hollywood and everything. I'm like, I don't know. I feel like it's easier to think of an example of sci-fi movies that have moved conversations and culture forward than it is to think of biopics that did mm-hmm. anything meaningful for us. <laughs> that is a good point. I really cannot think of very many biopics that I would say have moved culture and cinema mm-hmm. forward. Right. Yeah. I th- I th- it, first of all, I think a lot of them have the problem of being Wikipedia, which is to say you move from life event to life event. And that's not enough of a narrative thread. And also the most compelling way to learn about people like that, generally speaking, is to read the Wikipedia, just like learn their life story. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to see it realized on the silver screen. Or a book. That said, Lewis. I don't know what that is. And I resent <laughs> you bringing it up. Um, but um, oh, I, I mean, I do love a memoir, et cetera, uh, that kind of thing. Good I answer. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but one biopic I am looking forward to because I think it follows the rules that we have previously set on this podcast is being the Ricardos, the uh, uh, I Love Lucy uh, with uh, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem mm-hmm. for a couple reasons. I've been dubious about this in previous episodes, but 
Lucy Arnaz, the daughter of Lucy and Desi, has come out. And I know she worked on the movie with Aaron Sorkin, but she's like, this movie is friggin' amazing. And I think the thing is they pick a very small window into the life of these people and just explore that. So it's not like the point of any given scene is, here's where this famous event occurred. Here's another famous event coming on. You're not just watching a timeline and each individual coordinate thereon. Here you get locked into how these characters were thinking and you know smaller emotional moments. And even though, as Lucy Arnaz even acknowledges, Javier Bardem looks nothing like Desi Arnaz, I think we will finally take an iconic figure that everybody knows and think about them as they were. And I think that's important because people think of like Lucille Ball as a comedian and she is not. She is a comic actress who was in real life, in fact, a bit, I don't want to say taciturn, but kind of a serious person. Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, looking forward to seeing that explored on the big screen, even though the memory of Kate Blanchett once being cast in this is casting a pall a little bit for me because she was so exactly right for this role. Wow, wow. Well, no, I think what you said gets to, and it's hard to actually think of a lot of examples, but yeah, I think if if I were to do a biopic, if I were in charge of it, I would say we're going to pick a significant weekend, um, you know, or evening or an incident. I think of- As long as it's not with Marilyn. Oh, girl, don't, don't even. I know, that's the it. bad example of this good don't thing. Do yes. it. <laughs> but you know, like, yeah, I think a very, like, um, Frost Nixon, I think is a good Definitely. example. Was it Natalie Portman? Was it Jackie? Was that mm-hmm. the title of that mm-hmm. bio? You know, like, like, let's look at the, the first few weeks or the first few days after, like, the assassination, as opposed to Jackie Onassis Kennedy's entire damn life. I think that's the problem a lot of them mm-hmm. make. Yes, mm-hmm. this podcast has often de- delved into um, scream like, um, the, there are very specific rules of a biopic that you must follow <laughs> in order to survive. Um, but I, we've always come down on the side of, I don't want to see somebody's whole goddamn life. Like, mm-hmm. truly, that is that is miniseries level. You know, for this, yeah. like for a biopic, if you were writing about someone so like majestic, so iconic, there are iconic moments in their life, you know, like you don't need to see um, everything, you know, I like to varying degrees. I've liked, you know, like Barack Obama biopics, you know, like Southside Walk With Me wasn't that enrapturing, but, you know, like Barry, I enjoyed because that showed him, you know, in in college, you know, before he became the president, you know, I think like fine moments that tell us who a character, who a person was. And that's all you need to do because you can show who a person was, give us a new insight into them by just writing about an interesting moment in their life or making Mm -hmm. a life in their moment that maybe just shed some light on who they are as a person. It doesn't even need to be like exciting, you know? Right. No, um, for instance, I know in the future we're going to get a biopic of David Geffen Mm -hmm. and there are plenty. Let's just this hasn't happened yet. So I'm going to speculate what it should be. Pick the moment at the beginning of his career when he was an agent to Laura Nero, like the uh, female singer he was obsessed with at the time and and Mm -hmm. eventually sold her catalog and they made millions together that she would have never made otherwise. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to learn about that crystallizing moment. I don't need to see him working with like Steven Spielberg in the DreamWorks era. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Take me, give me the one moment that really instructs me, tells me something about him. Another biopic, 
that is a super underrated. I mean, I guess it's technically a biopic. It has famous characters in it. And it, uh, like you said, Saeed, it takes place over a weekend. It's mm-hmm. called Impromptu. And it's about um, Frederick Chopin and George Sand. And that's oh, wow. Hugh Grant and Judy Davis. Mm. Uh, Judy Davis in menswear, which, by the way, that's a fuck yes from me. That's what yeah, we want mm-hmm. from the, from an Australian woman who looks good in brown lipstick. Yeah. That's what I want. But you do not like <laughs> um, Kate Blanchett in menswear in I'm Not There. <gasps> no. Uh, well, is that even wow. menswear? That's Halloween. That's not the same thing. <laughs> don't, don't be talking about that. I have, I have a good, like, fantasy biopic because um, mm. I've just been doing research for the next book and I have a poem about Luther Vandross mm. um, and, who comes and up so by I, the way all the time on this podcast we love his, him anyway. never is, too much. Mean, he is like never too, much. <laughs> never too much always in the cut um, so I, I read um, Craig Seymour's excellent biography The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross by Craig Seymour there was a point when uh, Dion Warwick lived like literally around the corner um, from Luther Vandross in LA and so she would come over to his house regularly to play Pac-Man to no. play Pac-Man. It was like a regular thing. She would come over, her son would drive her and drop her off, and then they would play Pac-Man. And then one of the times her son came, you know, to pick her up after their like afternoon <laughs> together, he was like, Hey Luther, I have uh some demos. And one of them turned out to be here and now, which becomes Luther's <laughs> one of his biggest hits. I would watch a movie that's just like the Pac-Man sessions. Like that's oh just gonna God. be like weird and interesting, yeah. you know. <laughs> Watch out, basement Dion tapes. Being like, yeah, right. Here it is. Dion Warwick being like, I want to play some Pac-Man, hussy. <laughs> I love them Tell little that hussy Miss yeah. Pac-Man. I got her number. <laughs> By the way, I went to a Dion Warwick concert literally 10 days ago or something, and mm-hmm. I didn't know this looking at the crowd, I am the world's youngest person. I had no idea. Uh, everybody there was like three times my age. <laughs> I mean, that's like that's like when I went to, you know, the band that's tattooed on my arm, a Hollow Notes concert, and this, this, this older couple next to me was like, we met in high school. Our first date in high school was the Hall and Oates concert oh, in like oh 1979. And I'm like, okay, girl. <laughs> right. Mood. I was not I born. Um, what are, <laughs> sorry, you know, one of my favorite biopics, I would say, you know, is um, Malcolm X. You know, that seems like mm. it, it, it gets mm-hmm. it It's been there. a while since I've seen it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. S- Spike Lee did what needed to be done in that film right you know uh i think you know um 24-hour party people interesting i forget to think of it as a biopic it is though yeah Yeah. i was gonna say i mean malcolm x i think is a good example again i mean it it did something for the culture it powered conversations i would say what's love got to do with it absolutely what's love got to do had like a (sighs) seismic you know like often i think biopics at best are good for the character actor's career, right? Like it, it's it's a, like a ward opportunity. It lets them flex their muscles. But like what's left got to do with it? I mean, it I think really changed the way a lot of us talk about things like domestic violence and certainly Tina Turner herself, you know? Mm. Also that movie in particular, I mean, obviously people know it gets into uh, the quote unquote tumult of their relationship, but my God, mm-hmm. it is unsparing. I mean, that is a mm-hmm. difficult movie to watch, mm-hmm. you yes. know? Like yeah. up there with the most violent movies maybe I've seen. Yeah. I mean, uh, which is unusual for a biopic that is there to like, you know, toast the um, yeah. legend. Another of, violent of somebody. biopic, Raging Bull. 
Yes. Which oh. when you watch Raging Bull, a part of me almost it, it, this goes back to what we were just talking about uh, regarding Dune and what it inspired. Raging Bull, in a, in a way, feels like a laundry list of things Martin Scorsese is known for. So when you watch it the first time, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. this doesn't even stand out in a way because it's all mm-hmm. these specific things we're familiar with already about Martin Scorsese. That said, it's also the culmination of everything he's great at, right. too. And right. also, Kathy Moriarty, love that performance. Mm-hmm. Iconic. Iconic. Mm-hmm. Would we count Party Monster as a biopic? It's about two famous people. Yeah. Yeah. This is what I feel like it's kind of hard to tell, you know, how do we define biopic? But I, if we can count it, I think it's a great biopic. I think it's a, I think <laughs> it's a biopic, you know. Um, so there are some upcoming biopics. Um, King Richard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which I hear is fabulous. I'm really looking forward to it. I hear mm-hmm. it is fantastic. And um, we should emphasize that King Richard is about the father of Venus and Serena Williams. Yes. 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 It's, 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 it's not about... Um, you know, it's not a Shakespeare adaptation. Uh, <laughs> like, that's a hell of a biopic. Yeah. yeah. But it was written by a Zach Balin. And I met him recently and it made me even more excited for the film because um, he had said that, um, you know, there's some um, obviously there's a moment where like you discover that like, uh, you know, um, he had a different family, you know, he had, you know, like cheated on like the, the Serena and Venus's mother. Uh, and, you know, like he was worried about like including that in there. And apparently Venus and Serena's mother was like, you know, um, if you're going to put that in there, you're going to put it in there. Right. And how I actually found out about this. Um, so that moment in the film is like actually true to life to how she found out about the affair. Um, so that is stuff that makes me, um, excited to see something like that. You know, it's exciting to see it. Um, when at first I was sort of like, why are we seeing a film about their father? Um, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of them, but you know, I think this is also the better route to go because, you know, I don't think we're at a point now where you getting like a, hot serena or venus like biopic yeah i mean i i don't think their story's over you know right 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 you it's know? not the time you know what you so I, I am looking forward to king richard um and that's really interesting but what this just got me thinking about and then also i was like oh will smith did like um the muhammad ali biopic years ago i think another issue i have with the genre is i think I feel like there's a history of Hollywood not wanting to make movies about black people mm-hmm. in particular, unless it's a biopic, usually of, you know, a famous athlete, a famous musician or TV star. And so I think, I mean, so it almost doesn't have anything to do with the movies themselves. It's more this like, we're not interested in the stories of black people unless they are extraordinary and a household name for white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- right. They've already been. People already know the story to a certain extent. And they've already been lionized, you know, in a way where it's like they feel like a they're a good person or they were they're a troubled person. But, you know, like they feel Mm -hmm. human where whereas, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mm -hmm. black people in general don't feel human. You know, Uh, they can't tell their their, Mm -hmm. their regular stories, you know. Um, Right. That said, did we ever get an Arthur Ashe biopic? That seems like a weird omission. Oh, I, I I don't know if there has been one, and I know I think there's a Bayard Rustin uh, yeah. biopic. Dustin Lance Black um, did did write that film, so uh, I am um, cautious. <laughs> um, I'm very, this is I'm, one of those moments where it's like should have been a live show. I'm, because I'm, the look I'm, on my face. I'm very cautious, <laughs> but you know what? Gus Van Sant did save 
um, Milk, which is also a fantastic biopic, you know. So, oh, that is a good one. Um, okay. I just did some quick Googling, and there is an Arthur Ashe biopic in the works from Defy Blood screenwriter Kevin Wilmot. So, anyway, okay, it's okay. me, uh, a De- Dreamweaver. Defy Blood was also a fantastic fucking film. Um, oh, yeah, we had Delroy on. Yeah, apparently, we weren't, uh, we didn't give him the uh, Oscar nomination. God damn it, yeah, you he's know. So good. We can't, we we're we're not we're not a pipeline to awards yet, you know. Uh, <laughs> Coming soon. Uh, Emmys, though, we've some people have gotten some Emmys after being on this show. So that's true. Uh, okay. okay, I did not know that there is a Baz Luhrmann. Elvis biopic coming, and that honestly right. sounds like uh, a migraine. <laughs> well, also, sounds by the like way, a bit of an acid trip. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I almost look forward to that approach over the because I've seen the TV movie of um, the Kurt Russell Elvis from the late 70s, and here and there, I, I don't think of Kurt Russell enjoyable on screen, not a, not a powerhouse in that role for me. So, mm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously the um, the one I'm looking forward to the most. The biopic this year is, you know, the father, son, the house of Gucci. Oh, mm. okay. See, well, that would just be a good time. I love a crime <laughs> biopic because that's really just a true crime story, you know? Right. And Gaga's going to eat that up. Yeah, it's just got to be I a hope party. so. I actually, in A Star is Born, she was obviously compelling, but I actually did think there was a bit of attentiveness to her performance because she's not a seasoned pro. And now she's doing this thing where she has to, quote unquote, go for it with a performance. And I hope she really does go for it as opposed to just commits to a big accent. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I hope there's some depth to the insanity. Yeah, there's, and then there's also... um. A Ronald Reagan biopic coming out with Dennis Quaid, but I, I mean, keep it. <laughs> <laughs> the actually the Reagan biopic I do <laughs> want to see is more the Rock Hudson biopic. I would love to see the Rock Hudson asking uh, Nancy Reagan to help him with AIDS and that story. And she's like, you know what? I'm on the fence. Yeah, sorry. Uh, you know what? Um, <laughs> I ain't got time for all that faggot shit. (laughs) I've got China to purchase. Uh, And of course, to wrap, um, I always keep forgetting that Anna DeArmas will be playing Marilyn Monroe. Right. And apparently the like most sexually lurid version of Marilyn Monroe's life you'll ever get. Did Adrian Lynn direct it? I feel like she keeps forgetting. Giving you Marilyn Monroe, the sexual thriller. Um, I know it was directed by Andrew Dominic, um, who did Killing Them Softly and the assassination Mm. of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which are two good films. I haven't seen that movie in forever, and I did enjoy it at the time. Wow, that's what we used to think Casey Affleck was, huh? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but I'm like, has he demonstrated his capacity to make movies about women with any kind of nuance? I don't know. <laughs> That's fair. Good po- That's I fair. like that. Yeah. If, you're, yeah. if you're good for Casey Affleck, will you be good for, <laughs> for Marilyn Monroe? I don't know. Well, you know, um, Adrian Brody is in it as the playwright, and I think we know who that is. 
Oh, oh, oh is, is he literally right. listed as the playwright? the playwright? Like it has to be off the record. Yeah, mm. you know. Oh, oh, so they're still. Is, so wait, is this the movie based on the Joyce Carol Oates script? It is. Yes. Yes. On the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Right. Yes. Well, you know. If you've ever Can't, read her Can't... Twitter, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Anyway, um, I think we solved the sci-fi and the biopic problem. Um, oh, yeah. So, Hollywood, you are welcome. <laughs> coming up next, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is keep it. Saeed, you are our guest of honor. (laughs) Why don't you go first? Well, you know, as much as I hate to drag a fellow resident of the great state of Ohio, Dave Mm. Chappelle has left me with no choice. I thought you were going to say Toni Morrison. (laughs) Keep it, Toni. Not not Miss Morrison. No, no. I just, you know, listen, we're all, we're all dick suckers here. So, you know, I I, I find, um, I always, I always try to be deliberate when, when talking about straight people at all, Mm -hmm. especially when like straight people are just being, homophobic or transphobic in like a retrograde way i'm like do i even need to honor them (laughs) with like my attention but i just find you know he put out his like most recent statement uh yesterday on instagram basically saying like i am willing to meet with the trans community i'm like oh you're gonna get them all in the same room at once um but like what does he say like i i won't you know i won't uh bow to their demands but then here are my demands Mm -hmm. and one of them is just like a random unnecessary cheap shot at hannah gatsby um you know a a comedian who by the way hasn't said anything about dave chappelle hannah gatsby when she spoke out you know was basically like listen netflix leave me out of this and also definitely don't try to use me as a human shield she didn't really criticize dave chappelle as far as i've seen so i just you know first of all dave chappelle can always keep it i mean just he's he's been on this this fixation on trans people in particular for the last few years in a way that feels a little creepy it's giving a little telling on oneself but that's not my business but the reason i think he needs to keep it is that the way you talk about something says a lot about your intention, you know? And if you are really trying to have a learning process, if you're trying to have a dialogue, if you're like, I don't know, gender is complicated and I'm confused and I want, you know, there's a way to have that conversation. But when you're like taking pot shots at like other queer comedians, when you're like telling, when you're acting like you're being held held hostage by trans people, like I won't listen to your demand. I'm like, what? No, this is not, it's very clear he just wants to be the next Joe Rogan. And I think he realizes that there is a lot of money to be made by like veering to the right, sincerely or insincerely. And that's what he's doing. He's going to make a, he's going to come up with a new show about being canceled or something and get a big, you know, deal and continue to profit from it. So I would like this to be the last time I talk about Dave <laughs> The thing he said about Hannah Gatsby, where he says, Uh, anybody who engages in a debate with me has to admit that she's not funny. It's like the cheapness of that is so extreme because there's nothing in particular cis straight male fans of his are probably more pressed Mm -hmm. about than having paid attention to Hannah Gadsby, a a lesbian whose life has nothing to do with them for even two seconds. The, the being pressed about 
her getting any attention, which still lingers in a way that like, mm-hmm. I can think of other celebrities where it's like, this is not the same thing. I don't mean to compare Hannah Gatsby to this person, mm-hmm. but the particular disgust people have about Lena Dunham that is like actually unearned after the strange things she has done in the media is yeah. like, it yeah. really pisses me off that he was galvanizing that kind of force. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just mm-hmm. uh, unbelievably cheap and like scary in a way. Why do you need like your weird hostile fan base who are who by the way are like using the guise of freedom of speech to justify their rage when in fact if a female comedian for example had said half the things that dave Chappelle had said in his special they wouldn't care at all they wouldn't be sticking their necks out they're standing they're defending their own fandom more than they're defending freedom of speech or whatever the fuck they think they're defending if they really wanted to look at some more controversial trans jokes that people that some trans people like some queer people like some don't like you know like there's sam j's show and some stand-up you know which i thought was at least more edgy you know than uh and actually trying to tell jokes you know and then there's the whole idea that um so many black celebrities now are just like dipping into because they have decided that they are the most oppressed are just like linking up with you know like the like the bad bitches on the right like you can't tell me people mm-hmm. who are protesting uh against trans people who are protesting Netflix are like mostly Dave Chappelle fans. Most of them don't give a fuck about Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. They're just like racists and homophobes and they're like glad that they can link to something. You know? That's like mm-hmm. when all those people started uh being like, listen to Nicki Minaj, you know? You know, uh this right. she, mm-hmm. we should be listening to her. She's the only person speaking the truth about vaccines or when Kanye all of a sudden got all these new white fans because we know mm-hmm. he already had a lot of white mm-hmm. um, male fans. Um, I went to college with most of them. But um, the newer <laughs> ones, the racist <laughs> ones, are they, they love latching on to a black person who, right. you know, is um, tap dancing, so to speak. Soft shoeing. <laughs> yeah, soft shoeing, soft shoeing, honey. Real soft. Pedal soft. No, I mean, like with Nicki Minaj, where it's like, yo, at the point that Tucker Carlson is like suddenly in your corner, that would make me incredibly right? uncomfortable. Or like, you know, or this week with Dave Chappelle after his like new statement, like Ben Shapiro's like quote between like, yeah, mic drop. And I'm like, doesn't that make you uncomfortable? Right. Like, Tucker Carlson ain't doesn't. sitting with Anna. Okay. Come on. His his plates don't say Chun Lee. Come on. I'm so bad. And and also like I hate when this stuff happens too, because you know, like mm-hmm. what now do I have to like Nanette? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to like it in oh, opposition? No. <laughs> oh. It's all leading to this. Uh, you know I love being a heel, Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> well, as long as we're talking about um, conservatives being annoying and latching on to like some like celebrity news story uh just so they can gain relevance um i am so maddened by um everything that has happened after the tragedy on the set of rust um the new alec baldwin film and the Mm. death of um cinematographer and dp um 
Hannah Hutchins. First of all, it's a fucking tragedy that this woman mm -hmm. died um, on a set, on a set that um, comes after we've had like weeks of, uh, you know, like um, the IATSE talking about how unsafe it is for crews on set, um, talking about how they need better conditions, better work hours. And here, all of these reports are coming out that like um, the crew was like, walking off of this set before this that there were unsafe work conditions that like they were made to drive from santa fe to albuquerque if they wanted to work which is insane to me because i remember when we shot daybreak uh in albuquerque and i know how fucking far as santa fe is to albuquerque you know it's like pay for your fucking crew to be next to the set it's insane uh and that's what people talk about the fact that like you already have these long ass hours and then you want someone when they're done with work all day to drive a long ass distance to another city to sleep it's rude it's disrespectful it's corporations in hollywood and production companies like cutting corners and not caring about the people who are actually making their films. And so when you have already unsafe working conditions and someone dies um, like this, it's a tragedy and it's also negligence. But also, mm -hmm. it is not an opportunity for people like fucking Don Jr. and other conservatives to get their oh Alec Baldwin jokes off and now decide that this is oh, like, gross. this is, oh, this is how they're finally going to take down a person who hates Donald Trump. Like, it's so dumb. And it's, it's a... It's that thing that always happens when, like, they latch onto something like that, and it's sort of like, well, it's different from, like, the Nicki Minaj thing, you know, where, like, they're, like, latching onto something bad. Mm -hmm. This is where it's like, yes, we do need to talk about the tragedy on the set. We do need to talk about the unsafe work conditions, but, like, the only reason you care about this is not actually for the right reasons. You don't care about any of those things. Right. You would actually be, you mm -hmm. would actually prefer if most people in Hollywood were killed. Well, also, it's just, yeah. it literally is that Alec Baldwin is outspoken against Donald Trump. Yeah, so that's he took it. this opportunity to, to ignore the gravity of the situation and just say, mm -hmm. Alec Baldwin killed somebody. So if it had anyway, been anybody else, sensitive I mean, and yeah. nuanced yeah. their take. If it had been yeah. anybody else, they wouldn't have given a fuck. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And I mean, it's, it's the broader problem I have with all of this, whether it's, like we said, Tucker Carlson and Nicki Minaj or Ben Shapiro suddenly acting like he has ever cared about Dave Chappelle's work. You know, it's point scoring. Yeah. They, they, they don't actually care. They, there's there's no I don't even think there's ideology. There's but there's certainly no moral. Right. They, they just want they're like it's another point to get a like a, a point on the board for our team. And they're willing in a craven way to like take on any news story or any issue to do that, including someone was killed and someone else was injured on mm -hmm. set, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, there are just like so many levels to this being a tragedy. And it just shows like there is just, unfortunately, like I think no no bottom that they won't sink to as long as they see an opportunity to get a couple of tweets in. It's awful. Also, the, the, their whole reason to be is just, quote unquote, owning the libs. I mean, there's no mm -hmm. other ideology other than clapping back at, people that they get to pretend are oppressing them or are are, mm -hmm. are the majority while they're like, you know, the disenfranchised, you know, underrepresented losers when, by the way, you cannot fucking get away from these people. So, right. Yeah. Anyway, Lewis, why don't you take us out with uh, a much more lighthearted keep it? 
a whimsical keep. Please. Yes. <laughs> Um, a, a cultural institution is at stake, though, because my keep it is to Adele's 73 questions, which somehow <laughs> I think, you know what? I can't confirm that it's the worst one ever. No, that's Emma but it Stones. certainly is. <laughs> Emma's up there. There's a lot of like Emily Ratajkowski. Mm. I mean, there's some Kylie Jenner's is bad, but, too. Oh, right. Oh, Kylie Jenner's. Um but this one is the longest, which makes it a particular kind of bad. It's 18 minutes long. Let's talk a, mu- a minute about the 73 questions that are amazing, which are Nicole Kidman's, which is about eight minutes. Mm. Sarah Jessica Parker, which is about five minutes. And now what goes wrong with this Adele thing? First of all, she doesn't just get asked 73 questions. There's a cheeky reason she is asked 95 questions because the uh, interviewer asks her, what's the name of the new album? Which, by the way, I believe we already know is called 30, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, yeah. So they must have filmed this a while ago. It turns out if you add all of her album numbers together, they get to 95. And that's what people figured out in the comments. Anyway, well, because of that fun little cryptogram, we have Adele sitting down <laughs> and answering the most boring fucking questions for 18 minutes. It's way too related to her current project. There's way too many boring questions about like, I don't know, putting the music together. And she is not entertained. This is the thing about 73 Questions. It is secretly a showcase of who's a really good actor because they act mm-hmm. like the questions are new. They act like they just came up with them on the spot. And they have to be thrilled to answer these questions as they choreograph a very strictly arranged blocking schedule that these things go on. And Nicole Kidman is the master of it. She's like going through a house, introducing animals, mm-hmm. uh, uh, showing us beautiful rooms, desks, shout out singing to, Keith Urban songs. Shout Woof. out to yeah. uh, Victoria Beckham's though, because the choreography in that is beautiful. She's getting dresses. She's giving up to salespeople. She's turning around. What's the one thing in the world you would get rid of? AIDS. <laughs> right. Damn. <laughs> and you know what? It happened. No, anyway. Um, <laughs> She did it. Um, Anyway, I I think what's especially um, disconcerting is that Adele is, I think we think of somebody as one of our more entertaining celebrities. Like she's really funny, Mm -hmm. um, seems to be genuinely self-deprecating as opposed to that awful strain of pizza is my boyfriend that runs all over Twitter. Like she's just actually has a cool (laughs) British sense of self-deprecation. And she just seems so fucking bored. And she says too many things about how the lyrics on this new album are her favorite lyrics. You can't even prove that. Stop it. I don't even believe it. So um, she just unfortunately was boring. Mm. And I kind of like her new single, which when I hear that 80s remix of it that has gotten around, I realize that what I don't like about the new Adele single is the production. Mm. The song is good. I wish it had some, like a rhythm to it or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, w- I was very bored by this as well. And I think there was a Gawker piece uh, about how like oh, yes. 73 mm-hmm. questions, the institution is just sort of crumbling in general because... Yeah, like I mentioned that Victoria Beckham moment, which is we used we watch um, seventy three questions with our friends because they're fun. Um, you're mm-hmm. not watching it because they turn into interviews where you're just like asking someone about their project. Who cares? We're yeah, already we're right. watching it because we know we're the in album is coming out. Yeah. We don't need you like they don't mention any like of the current movies or whatever that like, Nicole Kidman's working on in hers. You know, it's not no. like what's it like on set. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this right. it's, it's just very. I was trying to think. Questions. I mean, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sarah Jessica Parker, I loved hers. Because again, it's like, you, you, what I realized is like, you don't watch 73 Questions for the answers. You right. wa- It's almost mm-hmm. for the movement. I mean, yeah. it's almost, I think you said it, it is a dance. I, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. It looks really complicated, but like Sarah Jessica Parker's was incredible. Tracy Ellis Ross's was Hers really is one fun. of my favorite ones. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. She's so yeah. game for it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Donatella Versace saying her favorite film is The Shape of Walter. I mean, <laughs> just Catholic. Who would you like to have lunch Clearly with? Clearly the movie she saw most recently. Yes. Who would you like to have lunch with? Barack, uh, sorry, Michelle Obama. And who would you like to have dinner with? That would be Barack Obama. <laughs> Mike, I also have a, I also have another keeper to Adele uh, because we, listen, we always thought she was the down ass cool chick. Uh, it was a little, you know, waving a little with the the j- bantu knots, but um, mm-hmm. girl, she let me down when she was asked to rank her favorite Beyonce albums in order. She I said am, Sasha Fierce I am number Sasha one. Fierce's jail, first. jail, <laughs> jail, and that like she has never revealed herself to be uh, four a is basic right there white yeah. woman more calling your <laughs> n- only. White women love I Am Sasha Fierce, the basic kind. It is a bad album. It's actually unequivocally Beyonce's worst. I don't, I cannot entertain anyone saying that that's their favorite Beyonce album. Because you like single ladies? I was so Have shocked that the, the rest the, of it? <laughs> Have you listened to the rest right. of it? Okay. That unnecessary Ava Maria. Ugh. Uh, also, that Beyonce self-title didn't make it into the top three felt, I'll say it pointed. I, I was shocked. Yeah. I was genuinely shocked when she did mention that. My my, The one time where I was like most frustrated with 70 questions was when, um, so I hate James Corden. I, I hate him. <laughs> I, I hate, it's, it's not even to keep it. It's like, I hate you. I hate you. Saeed, I'm sorry. Um, this, I is know a, I'm right. this is a pro-James Corden podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I hate both of you bitches too. But the fact that she and, and the other thing that I just find like really gross is like spit. And so mm. when she's like this whole build up to like what's the most cherished item in your home, and I'm like, oh, that's a, a pretty interesting question. And then she pulls out a wad of gum that James Gordon got Celine Dion to spit into a napkin, and was I was just like, what the How? fuck? What is <laughs> Vile. White people are nasty. Vile. It's not cute. The hygiene. You know? The hygiene. Oh. Adele, you got a lot to answer for. And you can do that, and you can do that on Keep It. Come on the podcast. <laughs> after, we, after we just dragged her. We'll take it all back. After she just yeah. dragged her. Oh. <laughs> uh. Uh, yeah, you're invited, girl. You know what? Uh, Hated the Skyfall theme, actually, but you're invited. Okay, well, you Aww. know what? We're not doing that again. We're not doing that again, <laughs> Lewis. I keep being right. Uh, Saeed, thank you for being oh, here this week. Yeah, A pleasure. Yes. This was so fun. Yes. This was worth the wait. Yes. I, love it. I love it. And Now thank- all of Adele's fans are going to come ruin our lives. <laughs> right. This is the end of your life, actually. Uh, yeah. What is Adele Hive called? <laughs> what are they called? No, they they have an awful fan name. Um, It's oh, really? D- Daydreamers. The fuck? Oh, shut up. <laughs> no, it's, it's so upsettingly bad. Mm, you know what? <laughs> I am not a daydreamer. I'm a day tripper. I'm a Nancy Sinatra fan. 
Oh, I was okay. going to say The Beatles? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, that's her song. Okay, fuck Ringo okay. and the crew. Nancy made it better. <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles, or as we know them, Ringo and the crew. Yes. <laughs> uh, and thank you to Claire Foy for joining us as well. Uh, this has been Keep It. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Rustin. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. That I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin, and the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.